You know, one of my greatest fears, one of my greatest fears in life is that it actually won't end up mattering at all. One of my greatest fears in life is that it won't end up mattering at all. I'm scared that one day I will be on my deathbed and I'll look back over all the time that the Lord has given me and I'll come to this shocking and terrifying realization that I wasted it. That I wasted it. Now, I'm a three on the Enneagram. Uh, And if you're not familiar with the Enneagram, it's a tool to help assess and diagnose our God-given personalities. The three is known as the achiever. And Enneagram threes are typically very driven people. They're often motivated. There's a core fear within each Enneagram type. And the core fear, uh, different types of people that are other than threes, they are driven to achieve and succeed. But the core fear of a three is a fear of failure. A fear of failure. And I know that personality assessments, they're not perfect. This is not the end-all be-all. But at least in this case, I live into this type just perfectly. Nothing, I mean, hardly anything else drives my life more, if I'm really honest, than a fear of failing. Than a deep, abiding fear of failing. So of course then, it makes sense that I'm deeply concerned that as I were to look back on the whole of my life, I would sort of comprehensively realize that I wasted it. That it ended up not mattering. That I failed at the big project of life. But even though I'm a three and I have this fear of failure, I actually wonder if this is a little bit more of a universal worry. I actually wonder if I'm not alone. I really think that at some level, whether we are three on the Enneagram or not, we all want our lives to matter. We all want to make a difference. We all want to leave an impact. We all want to build a legacy, right? Hamilton in the great musical, he says, I want to build something that outlives me, right? We all want to make a difference. I really believe that this statement is true no matter what type you are on the Enneagram. You want your life to matter. You want your life to matter. Now here's the thing. I wonder if you're thinking something like this. Sure, Paul, I want my life to matter. You're right. I want to make a contribution. I do want to leave a legacy. But I'm just a college student. You know, I'm only 19 or 20 or 21 or maybe 22 years old. I'm pretty sure I can figure all that out tomorrow or in May after I graduate or in two years when I finish up. Sure, I want my life to matter, but I don't have to worry about it today. Does that strike a chord with anyone? And maybe you agree with me that you want your life to matter, but maybe you're also planning to try to figure out how to do that later, after college, when you've become, quote, has anybody said this to you? A real adult, right? But hold up with me for a minute. If that's what you're thinking, if that's what your plan is, I'm not so sure about it. Pastor and author John Piper said this, life is precarious and life is precious. Don't presume you will have it tomorrow and don't waste it today. Friends, the difficult truth is that we do not know. None of us know. No one in this room knows what tomorrow holds. Frankly, we don't know what the next second holds. We can't put off the project of making our lives matter 
because we don't know ultimately how long they will be. And I'm not here, I'm not trying to stress anyone out this morning, but the task of not wasting our lives is one that is before us every second of our lives. It is in front of us every single time we make a decision during our days. It is the here and it is the now. You cannot actually put this project off if you want to succeed within it. So let me ask you, how how do you plan to make your life matter? What strategy are you going to employ as you seek to not waste your life? What approach will you use as you try to make an impact, as you try to leave a legacy? Now, there's an uncountable number of answers to that question. Isn't that true? But I don't believe that all of those answers are created equal. I do believe that we must select our approach to this project of making our lives matter very carefully. And that's because I believe that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, designed His world in a particular way with us, humans, men and women, woven integrally into that design. God didn't have to include us in His design in a major way, right? As God, let me remind you that He can do whatever He wants, but I am convinced that He did do this, that He did weave us into the very fabric of how He designed the world to work. I believe that God wired us for contribution. I believe that God created us with work in mind. I believe stunningly that God invites us into his grand project of the renewal of all things, largely through the various vocations that he has given to each of us. I believe that you want your life to matter. So why not view work as more than work? I believe that you want your life to matter. So why not view work as more than work? You've probably heard it said that on your deathbed, you won't wish that you spent more hours at the office. And this is sort of a cliche. It's an often repeated phrase for a really good reason. Because this comment is usually in reference to the idea that we shouldn't neglect the most important relationships in our lives. Especially with our immediate family. And of course, I think this is 100% true. I mean, remember the last message that we covered in this series, Faith for Exiles, just a couple weeks ago. It was all about the importance, the vital importance of relationships. The big idea was we can't do life alone. So I'm not at all advocating for workaholism where your family relationships and your friend relationships wither on the vine and die. Maybe some of you have parents like this or uncles like this or aunts like this or grandparents or maybe some of you sense these tendencies within yourselves to work and work and work and and you just disregard the other humans in your life that you can't do life without. I'm not advocating for that. I'm not even really advocating for more work. What I'm actually advocating for is a shift in our perspective on work. I mean, that's why our big idea is framed and written the way that it is. I want you to change how you view work. I want you to change how you look at work, how you perceive work, or maybe even how you feel about work. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, consider this exchange with me. Your roommate comes back from a shift at their job, wherever, Dollar General, DG, Casey's, the call center, wherever they might work part-time. They come back into the room and you're a good friend, right? You're a good friend. So what do you do? How was work? 
I bet many of you have said and heard the phrase, just a shoulder shrug, work is work, you know? Work is work. Work is work. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I I think the idea behind that exchange, if we dig into it a little bit, is that work is necessary, right? Work is work. It's necessary, but it's the worst, right? Work is necessary, but it's the worst. Like, I got to do it. Got to pay for college. I got to put a few dollars in my bank account. But I'm telling you, if I won the lottery tomorrow, I would retire at 21 and I would never work again. Is that sort of what's underneath that phrase? Like, work is work, you know? And listen, I do not want to minimize how hard work can be. How frustrating it is. Believe me, I get it. I really do. I have some days at my job, not because of you guys. (laughs) I have some days at my job that are hard, that are terrible, where I have that thought. Man, if I won the lottery, y'all would be looking for a new chaplain. (laughs) Right? I get it. But I just wonder if some of the reason why we really feel that toil, like some of us feel that super deep in our bones about work. And I wonder if maybe part of the reason why is how we have been subtly taught to view work and approach work and think about work. Could a change in our perspective help? Could engaging in meaningful work actually be part of how we make our lives matter, of how we make an impact on the world. You want your life to matter. So why not view work as more than work? Now, I've stated that I believe, this is a big statement, God created us with work in mind. When I say something like that, you got to call me on it, right? You can't, that can't just be Paul's opinion. You have to say, show me where you found that. Like, reveal that to me. And remember, we're a Jesus-centered institution. We take the Bible seriously. I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. I'm getting this from Scripture itself. From the very pages of the book that God inspired humans to write down so that He could leave His Word with us and we could turn to it at any point. So where do we find this idea? And it's actually super interesting, I promise. Because you see, a couple of weeks ago, when we were in this series and we were talking about how you can't do life alone, how relationships matter, we turned to the very beginning pages of our Bibles. And we discovered there the very first place that God says something is not good. Remember, everything is good, right? And before Genesis 3, we think, right? God created, it was good. God created, it was good. God created, it was very good. But in Genesis 2.18, we find the first evidence God says it's actually not good. This thing is not good. It's Genesis 2.18. It is not good for the man to be alone. It is not good for the man to be alone. A couple of weeks ago when we talked about this, what we discovered in this verse is that it shows us that we have a relational deficit. There is a relational deficit. We can't do life alone apart from a relationship with God or relationships with other image bearers. But track with me on this. We also see from this verse and from the passage that it is within, we also see how we actually also had a vocational deficit. A vocational deficit. And what I mean by this is really simple. It just means that there is a lot of good work to do, and we can't do that work alone. There's a lot of good work to do, and we can't do it alone. And again, we discover this by broadening out a little bit from Genesis 2.18 and looking at is what around it. So just three verses earlier in Genesis 2.15, this is what we read. 
Genesis 2.15, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch it. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Well, you may not have known this, but when God created us, He also gave us a job description. You didn't know that, maybe. When God created us, He's like, boop, here's your job description. There it is. Other duties as assigned. He gave us a job description. And Genesis 2.15 is part of it. You can discover the rest of our job description in Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. And as we read what our job description is in those first two chapters of the Bible, let me just break it down for you. It's a big job. It's a big job. Right? You know how sometimes you get those assignments in class and you're like, that one's easy, right? And you just know you're going to be able to knock it out. And then there's other times you get this, this assignment and it's like, you know, you're like stumbling backwards as you read it. Anybody else, any freshman experience syllabi shock? You open up all of your syllabi on the first day of class and you almost fall out of your chair. Our job description is a little bit like that. It's not small. It's huge. God has given us this massive work to do and He knew that we could not do it alone. So yes, one reason that God created Eve to be with Adam is his relational deficit. But also, there was a vocational deficit. God's like, man, I just gave this guy a ton of work to do. He is not, I mean, he had, Adam had to name all the animals. It's like, that's a big project. And there was more to do after that. And so God created more humans to join us. Now, maybe you're thinking that it's a bit strange, this idea of God giving us a job description. Maybe you're wondering why he did that. I mean, if he's God, couldn't he have not done that? Like, Why did we come with a job description? What's going on here? Well, here's the answer. Here is why we come with a job description. It's because we are created in God's image. We are made in God's image. The only part of creation that bears his image stamp it is what sets us apart from the rest of creation. And this is a moment where we get to be a little bit prideful. Where we get to look at the rest of creation and be like, y'all is great, but we are image bearers. There's a fundamental difference between us and the rest of creation. Psalm 8 says that God created us just a little bit lower than the heavens. It's stunning. We are all image bearers. And this is why we have a job description because this is who our God is. This is who our God is. He's the first worker. God is the first worker. This is an inescapable truth from the first two chapters of Genesis. I encourage you, take some time to read through these chapters and I promise you, you will see exactly what I mean. The fact that God is the first worker, this will smack you in the face if you read through these chapters. In Genesis 1, God's engaging in just, just like, like tiny little like work. It's just like basic stuff. Like he separates the day from the night. He creates the sun and the moon. He invents every single bird of the air and every single fish in the sea. It's just like super basic stuff. You and I knock it out on a Wednesday afternoon after chapel. No, right? Like this is the God of the universe. He is spinning up planets and stars and constellations. You cannot escape how big our God is when you read Genesis 1 and how good of a worker he is. And then you get to Genesis 2 and it zooms in on how close God is and how creative God is. 
In Genesis 2, God's creating man from dust. dust. He actually breathes life into his lungs. In Genesis 2, God's more of a gardener. He's planting, he's sowing, he's growing, he's cultivating, right? He's He's causing these beautiful trees to spring up out of the ground. He's making food ripen for eating, good food, the best food. This is Genesis 2. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, they come together to form this picture of God as the first worker. And listen, y'all, he's very good at it. God's the first worker, and he is very, very, very good at it. He created everything that exists in the world. The Apostle Paul says in one of his letters, everything that is seen and everything that is unseen, which I can't even wrap my head around. Everything that you've ever seen in your life, every moment of awestruck beauty where you almost fell over because of how great it was, God created that. Here's just one example. This is the famous cliff face, El Capitan, in Yosemite. The reason I always think of this one is because, have anybody seen the documentary Free Solo? Dude climbed that without any ropes. <laughs> okay? That is crazy impressive. Please go watch Free Solo. It's incredible. That is unbelievably impressive. God made it. We climbed it. I didn't climb it. We, collectively, as a humanity, we have climbed this. That's pretty good. God made it. God made that, just shaped it. This is who God is. He's the first worker and he is very, very good at it. Now, go with me for a moment. Go with me for a moment on this. What does every good worker desire for their work? When a good worker completes a project, what do they want to do with it? Now, I'll answer my own question with my own son, Bevan. Everybody go, aww. Okay, these pictures are a couple years old. He's almost seven now, six and a half. This is when he was about to turn four. And even at that age, we recognize that he qualified as a good worker. Well, Bevan, he's careful, he's patient, he's diligent, he's passionate about what he's doing. I mean, these are characteristics that you would want to describe of any good worker, right? Yourself or others. And every single time that he completes a project, Lego project, painting project. He just wrote a book, right? We've been doing chapter books. He's like scribbling down in a book. He just completed this just a week or two ago. What do you think he does? Every single time he works and he completes something and he thinks it's beautiful. He thinks it's gorgeous. What does he do? He runs to me. Daddy, daddy, dad, dad, come and see. Come and see. Come and see what I made. Come and see. Come and see. I mean, you know this to be true, don't you? Every good worker wants their work to be seen, to be delighted in, to be admired, to be enjoyed. And God is no different. God wants his work to be seen. He didn't hide El Capitan. He left it there for us to discover, for us to enjoy. God wants his work to be delighted in. Of course he does. And that's why we do too, because we are created in His image. But there is one major difference between God wanting His work to be delighted in in us. Have you noticed? And this is true for Bevan, this is true for me. We get possessive of our good work, don't we? What happens when, 
when our, our middle son, Owen, when he knocks over one of those towers, right? Bevan didn't tell him he could. Maybe I haven't even been in the room to see it yet. What happens when Owen does that to Bevan's good work? Anger, stomping, yelling, hitting, time out, <laughs> right? This is, and I do the same thing. I'm not throwing Bevan under the, under the bus. I am, and maybe you are as well. You are possessive of your good work because we think it's mine. I made it. I made it. You didn't make it. I made it. It's mine. It's my good work, and I don't want you to mess it up. I do that. Do you? This is not what God does. It blows me away. God is a better worker than all of us combined. It's not even close. He has made more beautiful and stunning and incredible creations than we could even fathom. And yet God does not possess it tightly. Instead, he looks at us, he looks at us and he looks at his very good work and he says, join me. I can't get over this. God looks at his creation, which is better than anything you and I will ever make. And he says, join me. Join me. Let's get going. Let's get going. God says, here's the Legos. I got started building the tower. You make it better. Here's the ingredients. Here's what you could do. I think you could make an awesome dinner out of this. Make it delicious. Here's my artwork, but I've left out a few paints. I've left out a few different hues, some trees there and there. Add to it. Enrich it. Make the painting more beautiful. Do not miss how incredible this is. God's better at working than all of us, but he doesn't possess it tightly. He does not grip it here. He opens it up and he says, join me. Join me. I have made you in my image. You are a worker like I am a worker. I'm better than you, but I'm inviting you to join me in my work. Do not gloss over the magnitude of this invitation. Please. Join God in his work. He's inviting you to do so. But as we close, we have to be careful not to forget where we started this morning. You see, I believe that part of why God invites us to join Him in His work of creating and cultivating is because He knows it is, the one, of, it is one of the ways that we can live lives that matter. It is one of the ways that we can make a lasting impact on the world around us. It is one of the ways, one of the mechanisms for us not wasting our lives. You want your life to matter, so why not view work as more than work? And again, I have to emphasize that this is not about working more. It's not about that. Workaholism is a real problem. We cannot save ourselves by our work. Believe me, I've tried. You can't do it. We shouldn't identify ourselves by whether or not we hold the impressive title or we're the captain on the team, whether we land the C-suite office, whether we get the big raise, if we start to build our lives wholly around work, it will crumble, just like everything else. The only, only, only foundation that is sure enough for you to build your life on that will never crumble is Jesus Christ. So I'm not telling you to build your life on work. That's a house of cards and it'll fall over. That's not what I'm doing. In fact, in Genesis 1 and 2, do you know what God does? Again, best worker there's ever been, blows us away when it comes to working. He's God, y'all. Do you know what he does? Day number seven, he rests. He stops working. He rests. And let me just let you in on a secret. Creating the entire universe did not make God tired. Like, I'm going to be exhausted after this sermon. 
You're like, whew, anybody got any oxygen, right? Like this sermon is going to knock me out. God spun up galaxies, and he's like, I'm good. I could go for days. But he rested because he knew that we would have to. He gave us a picture of ceasing from work, from resting from work, and some of you need to hear that. Some of you just need to stop because you're trying to earn your salvation. You're trying to build your identity on this. Some of you just need to stop and take a beat and rest because you're not God. He's got it. This is why we sleep every night. It's a tangible reminder that the universe does not run by our clock. Okay, that's some of you. There's others of you that I got to challenge a little bit this morning. Because there's others of you that don't work enough. It's just, it's true. Like, it's just true. There are others of you that need to go to class. There are others of you that need to study harder for tests. There are others of you that need to invest more in your sport. You're like, I'm not going to play, so I don't care. There are others of you that are like, I'm just an understudy. What a big, what's, what's the big deal? There are others of you that I have to challenge a little bit this morning in saying you are not living into the image that you were created in. You were created to be a worker, to be someone who engaged, and yes, someone that rested, but there are some of you that need to work harder. And in doing so, in doing so, you will honor God. You will honor God. Some of you need to get to work. Participate well in practice. Be a humble and supportive teammate. Learn the choreography for the show with dedication and drive. All of this, whether you believe it or not, this actually describes the various vocations, the callings and the work of college students, your classes, your practices, the part-time jobs that you hold. It all matters to God, and by doing it well, you honor Him and you help contribute to your kingdom. Sometimes we get this wonky idea that the only people that are honoring God in their work are pastors and missionaries. Those are the ones that do, quote, ministry. And everything else is what? It's just work. It's just class. It's just practice. It's just doing a shift at Casey's. It's just this. It's just that. Listen, Dorothy Sayers. Man, I love this. Author and scholar Dorothy Sayers. She says, the only Christian work is good work well done. The only Christian work is good work well done. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Because you're out here saying, I just this, and I just that. I just this, and I just that. Let's take a look. I've got a video for us as we close. I'm just a florist. Got a small shop. Nothing special. Silly way to spend your life, I guess, fussing with a bunch of flowers. Sometimes I wish I was good at something else. I don't know, a doctor or a missionary, someone who really helps people. But I do love flowers. I've always had an act for it. So I do my best to make them beautiful for people. 
But I know flowers can't change the world. I know I don't make much of a difference. I'm just a florist. I'm just a florist. I'm not crying, you're crying. Your work matters. It can and it does make an impact. You know, sometimes I think about this little quirky thing about Jesus. We spend 99.9% .9 of the time talking about the stuff that he did for just three years of his life. His vocational ministry, when he traveled around with his disciples, when he was preaching, when he was healing, when he was casting out demons, when he was calming storms, when he was walking on water, like Brian talked about last week, three years. Three years from ages 30 to 33. And, and we focus on those years for good reason. It's what we have the vast, vast, vast majority of the gospel accounts tell us of his life, right? This is, I mean, it's in, in some ways, it's ultimately what Jesus came to do. But do you ever think about the other 30 years? you ever wonder about those? Have you ever once thought about the other 30 years of Jesus' life? I have a pastor friend who he says we, 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 we skip the middle C of Jesus' life. We talk about the cradle. He was born as a baby. God come to earth. We should. That's incredible. We talk about the cross. We should. Absolutely. That's the Son of God hanging there for you and for me, for our sins. We should talk about that but we forget the middle C. Jesus followed in the footsteps of his earthly father. Jesus became a carpenter. He worked with his hands. He built tables. I'm pretty sure that Jesus did what Dorothy Sayers said. I'm pretty sure he did good work well done. We forget about the carpenter's shop. Forget about that. And yes, Jesus made this incredible global impact when he was doing his vocational ministry, but the work he did in the carpenter's shop, that mattered to God too. That mattered to God too. And friends, your work matters. Good work well done, offered up to God. It honors him and it builds his kingdom. I hope you believe that. I want you to believe that. Your work matters. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you so much that our work matters. Thank you that you've given us the example of Jesus who did phenomenal work the entire time he was on earth, both in his vocational ministry and in the carpenter's shop. Thank you for your example, Father, of how you created and cultivate and giving us a job description. Remind us that what we do each and every moment of every day is part of how we make our life matter. And none of this is possible without the empowering Spirit. So thank you that you and Jesus sent the Spirit and that He dwells inside each one of us who belong to you. We love you and we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.